We're in a new series. Family the week after that, or man and his wife, week after that, man and his family, and the week after that, a man and his legacy. Uh, last week we looked at a man and his potential. We talked about Samson and how he wasted his potential. This week being Easter, we decided to do a talk on uh, Jesus. There is no better man than Jesus. And we're going to talk about the one thing that Jesus Christ came to offer that you cannot, human beings cannot get anywhere else. And that's called grace. And grace is something that, that confuses a lot of people. And uh, we went in search of some men of grace, and, and all we found was some confused men. A man of grace serves his God by serving others. In the church, that could mean keeping kids, serving up food, or simply greeting people in the parking lot before church. So being a man of grace equals being a man of service. Yeah, that's not going to happen right there. From the top, guys, let's go! Just be glad we didn't put them in tutus. Um, we actually thought about it. Now, <laughs> a man of grace is one who serves, and they decided they'd rather do ballet than serve. And if you didn't recognize, that's all our band. It's uh, kind of scary, isn't it? Um, love that goes upward is worship. And, and some of you may be kind of new to the whole church thing, and, and especially the way we do church. Uh, if you see folks raise their hands, a lot of times they're, they're caught up in worshiping God. So that's, that's the love that flows upward and people will raise their hands and we clap our hands because we think church should be fun. So we get caught up in worship. Love that goes up is worship. Love that goes out towards other human beings, that's affection. And love that stoops to someone who does not deserve it, that's grace. We all understand the idea of loving someone who's nice to us, but when you give love, when you stoop down and you give love to someone who does not deserve it, that's grace. Now, I have a friend of mine here today, and you can't see this, but um, you know this is one of those paddles you take out on the beach and it has a little plastic ball and whack and whack and whack. Well, when, when my children were smaller, we used a uh, ping pong paddle to discipline their behinds. Um, and we never did it much, but there was always one or two swats. One time in my life, I gave Caleb three swats, and that's because Mama said, when Daddy gets home, you're getting three swats. I'm like, dude, because, you know, I don't want to beat my children, but I do want to get across the message. And what I do a lot of times, this, this one, we had to get something bigger because Caleb, when he was about three, he said to Mama, that didn't hurt. And um, so I said, baby, we need something that you can get both your hands on. And... And I asked him one time, I said, how come you don't say that to me? And he goes, because you hurt, you know. So I'm like, you're a wise young man. Don't ever tell daddy that didn't hurt because we'll, we'll figure something out. Um, this is called Big Blue. And Caleb has carved on here the name Big Blue. 
Big Blue um, administers some some pain when our, when our kids are, are needing discipline. Discipline is all about future behavior. Punishment is all about past behavior. Discipline is what we try to do at our house. And so I have this big long ritual. We'll go through kids get in trouble, and 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 I'll I'll hold them and I love on them, and I say, "You made a bad choice." And, and daddy's going to make sure you don't make that bad choice again. Daddy's going to make sure you remember this bad choice, and I want you to make good choices in the future. So discipline's all about good choice. Well, sometimes um, I'll, I, will, I will have grace on my children. And, and I've said this to Caleb many times, you know, because homeboy, when he was smaller, he was getting lit up all the time. And, you know, bend over and wow. And so every now and then I'll say, I'll say, man, I know this has been a tough week on you. So... You deserve a SWAT. You know it. Yes, sir. Because sometimes I'll, I'll make him. I'll say, what do you think you deserve? And he's like, 10 SWATs. I'm, no, I'm not going to give you 10. I know you're just, you know, you're, you're mourning the fact that you made a bad choice and you want to impress father, you know, that type of deal. So I'll say, no, uh, you deserve a SWAT. But every once in a while I'll say, but I'm not going to SWAT you. But because you broke a rule, somebody's got to be SWATed. And I'll say, I want you to SWAT me. So I hand him Big Blue and I'd bend over. He wouldn't swap me. Now, my loving daughters would be in another room. And they would hear this whole conversation. They'd go, I'll do it, Daddy. And so, because they can't be in there when the discipline's going on, so they come running in. And so I give them, and they get both hands. And my girls, my sweet little girls, two or three steps, wham! Now, honestly, it didn't hurt. I made them think that it did. And Caleb wouldn't do it for years. And I guess all that pent-up frustration, one day I said, I'll give you grace. And I said, but somebody's got to have a SWAT. And I said, I, I, I want you to SWAT me. And, and I guess it, because he goes, okay. <laughs> and he was, he was, this was probably three or four years ago, I don't know, 10 or 11. He really did. He got across the room. Doo, doo, doo. He was Happy Gilmore, you know, when he's teeing off. Wham! And it hurt. That boy lit me up. And I, I just stood there for a minute, gathering my composure. And the fear of God struck my son. And then I smiled and he's like, oh, he said, I thought I blew it. And I said, no, baby, it's grace. I'm giving you grace. You know, grace costs us something. Um, selfish people cannot extend grace. Uh, busy people cannot extend grace. Religious people cannot... Extend grace. And at this time of year, we're painfully aware that the IRS cannot and will not extend grace to those of us who owe things. Grace is the one thing the church, Christianity, has to offer that you can't get anywhere else. And you would think that if grace is something that the church has to offer, you'd think the, wor the, the world will be knocking down the doors to get in our churches. Why is that not happening? Look at this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from Christianity by Christians who are unfeeling? Now, you just don't mention names. You bring up some of these folks who fit this description in your mind. Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boring, lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied. Yet such Christians are everywhere. Spirituality wrongly understood... And we could put grace in there. Grace, wrongly understood, produces people who are smug, self-righteous, unable to love, unable to feel. It produces cold hearts, plastic ma uh, masks, sad faces, inauthentic lives, and shriveled souls. 
You know what he's talking about there? Graceless Christians. The world is so stinking tired of people who say they believe in Jesus Christ, they believe in grace, they believe in the right things, and they do the right things, but in whom the world never sees grace. It's no wonder that our churches are empty on Sundays. We've become a graceless people. And we spit out something called ungrace. And we're smug and we're self-righteous looking at other people. Easter is all about grace. Jesus Christ stooping down, offering us something we could not get on our own. If you ever study the life of Jesus, you'll see this radical man who looked for people in the most unlikely places on whom he could bestow grace. What we're going to look at today is, is a story where, and, and, and once we finish, I hope you'll understand this. This is the last place on the planet Earth a good Jew would expect Jesus Christ to shell out grace. And it's, if you have your Bibles, it's in the book of Luke, chapter 19. Follow along. There's several passages. This is on your listening guide, or you can follow along up here on the screen. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was one of the most influential Jews in the Roman tax-collecting business. That's real important. Remember that. And he'd become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowds. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree beside the road so he could watch from there. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down, for I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the crowds, those who misunderstood grace, but the crowds were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled, grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have overcharged people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this house today, for this man has shown himself to be a son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the the Jewish religion. And Jesus says, And I, the son of man, have come to seek and to save those like him who are lost. I love the last line, because Zacchaeus thought that on that particular day, he was seeking Jesus, but Jesus said, No. I was seeking you. There was a divine appointment that day. Jesus showed up. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking. Jesus was doing the seeking first. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background here. Jesus went around looking for people who needed grace. And this man needed grace more than anybody in the whole culture. Let me explain. In Israel, there were certain uh, vocations labeled despised trades. The religious leaders would sit around and come up with lists that any good Jew, any good God-fearing Jew would never go into these vocations. I just can't imagine me sitting around trying to come up with some of these. But this is what the Jewish religious leaders did. Now, these despised trades, one of the lists had at the bottom physicians and butchers. Because in that culture, physicians and butchers, um, they, they were tempted to cater to rich people and neglect poor people. And you just think about it. People have money. They're going to get the, the uh, physician's attention. People who have money are going to get the best choice parts of meat. And they're going to neglect poor people. Look what this one rabbi said. Now, rabbis were the authoritative teachers of the day. Look what this rabbi says. The best among physicians is destined for hell. And the most seemly of butchers is a partner in evil. Come on, lighten up. 
There are other occupations listed simply because they would turn your stomach. One of these, turn your stomach type deals, was called tanner of dead skins. Just picture it. you got to rip the skin off a dead animal. That's kind of gross. So that was on that list. But there was also dung collector. Now, this was a job. This was a vocation that a person could go into. And, and I think we actually have a picture of a dung collector that we wanted to share with you. I'm not making this up. In the Jewish culture, there were paragraphs written, and, and if a woman's future husband was going to go into dung collecting, she didn't have to marry him. If she was already married to him, she could divorce him and be and receive a sum of money for her trouble to get away from the dung, dung collecting fool. I'm not making it up. And, and she could even, according to one rabbi, she could even, if she got married knowing he was going into dung collecting, and then he, he goes in and, and she decides, she could say, I thought I could handle it, but I could not. And she was free to leave the dude with cash. This is bad news. But there is a list that was the lowest of all. And let me share that with you. Um, gambler with dice. So gambling, I don't think you would build a casino in Jerusalem, anywhere in, in Israel. Money loaner, because you know, you're tempted to charge crazy interest. Pigeon trainer, <laughs> that's because uh, pigeon training had to do with gambling. It was pigeon races, kind of like cockfighting today. And then what's at the bottom? Tax collector. The lowest of the low in this society was tax collector. Let me explain that. The Roman Empire controlled everything in that day. Rome was only interested in how much money they could get from this, this, these Israelites that they had uh, taken captive. So what they would do, rather than sending a Roman citizen to go collect taxes, they were pretty smart, the Romans. They would hire these Jewish people to do it because they would know where somebody was working. They would know relatives of somebody who was working. They would know what the job was. They would know how much money they could get from them. But here's how the Romans decided which Jew would get the job. The Jews would bid to Rome and say, I can collect this many taxes. Somebody over here, I can collect this many taxes. And instead of the lowest bidder, when you're trying to get construction on your house or something, you often go with the lowest bidder. This was the highest bidder. All Rome wanted to know was how much money can we get from the Jews. And so if you were the highest bidder, then you had to give to Rome every month whatever you bid. You bid $10,000, you better collect $10,000. Here's the kicker though. Anything you gathered over what you bid was just cash in your pocket. And so the Jewish people never had a clue how much Rome really wanted from them. All they knew is what the Jewish tax collector said was what they owed. And so they were shunned. Tax collectors were despised as traitors to the people of Israel. And they traded them for a profit. Everyone just assumed if you were a tax collector, you were dishonest. Kind of like we looked at Politicians today, tax collectors were so low in the eyes of the people that they would not be allowed to testify in the Jewish courts. Now, I was, I was not allowed on a jury one time, but it's because I was the assistant district attorney's pastor and he was trying the case. I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm his pastor, and the judge said, good, he needs one. And I said, well, yes, sir, but i got to tell you that I'm, I'm his pastor. And so the other guy kicked me off. Now, now Stanley wanted me on the jury because he knew I would probably um, have some things against this. But anyway, I, I didn't get this. These guys, just because they were tax collectors, they couldn't even testify in the court of law because they were just assumed to be so corrupt. 
If you were a tax collector, no good Israelite would speak to you, look you in the eye, and any upstanding Israelite would not even let the hem of his robe touch your robe lest he be defiled by a traitor. So you would be shunned. You would get rich. But every human relationship you knew, every relative, every national person that, that carried the same nationality as you would shun you. In order to be a tax collector, you had to make a choice between relationships and money. Zacchaeus chose money. And uh, so Zacchaeus was shunned by all the decent people in society. And evidently he was really good at his job because he was the chief tax collector. And one day Zacchaeus is sitting around by himself with all of his money, with all of his toys, and he hears about this radical dude named Jesus. And he says, i got to check this guy out. And the reason is not real hard to figure out. Just a few uh, weeks before, some, one of Jesus' own followers named Matthew was a tax collector. When he decides to give his life to Christ, Matthew doesn't have any friends because he's shunned. He doesn't know how to tell anybody else about Jesus, so what he does is he throws a party, invites all of the tax collector friends, and he invites Jesus. And the religious leaders were like, you hang out, you go to parties with notorious sinners like tax? How could a good person like you do that? Jesus didn't give a rip what they thought. He went and hung out with them. And so, so Zacchaeus is like, I've got to find, I've got to meet a man who, who hangs out with people like me. And so he goes to see Jesus. We don't know much about Zacchaeus other than he was vertically challenged. We don't know, uh, uh, we, we don't know, but we're just guessing that he was very rich and very corrupt. But for some reason, money and power didn't satisfy him. So he goes to see Jesus, but he's too short. And, and what do you do if you're too short? If you go to a parade and you're too short, you put your kids up on your shoulders, but what if you're too short? You climb a tree. Now, you've got to understand this. Middle Eastern people, Middle Eastern men, especially wealthy government officials, do not run in public. Zacchaeus hikes up his, his little robe. You can see those little legs. Runs ahead of the crowd. Jesus coming this way. Can you see him climbing the tree? And he's thinking, this is good enough. And he's thinking, wait, I'm short. He goes a little higher. Finds a branch where he can see the parade coming by. Pretty interesting stuff. I imagine him thinking, he helped others on the lists. Maybe he can help me. And see, being a tax collector, he knew that being in the crowd wouldn't be good. <laughs> you're a tax collector in the crowd, you're probably going to get beaten. So he goes up the tree and he's hanging out there. What have I got to lose? He takes a chance on this Jesus. And then the most unexpected things of all happen. Jesus stops and he looks up in the tree. We, we used to go in front of big government buildings when we'd be on youth group trips. And we just, we get like five or six of us and we just go. And, and it was like ten seconds before people would come by and they'd look at you. They'd look up. Before long, you'd have this huge crowd. Everybody's looking up there. And, and invariably somebody goes, what are you looking at? And we were, you don't see it? What is that? You know, anyway. Can you imagine the crowd hanging out by the tree? Jesus stops and looks up in the tree. So everybody looks up in the tree. And then I imagine this buzz goes through the crowd. What's he looking at? What's he looking at? Zacchaeus. Who? 
the tax collector is in a tree. And everybody has to see this. Everybody comes rushing up. And, and I can just imagine. I don't know the last time you were embarrassed, but I can imagine his cheeks getting red hot. We were at a uh, gymnastics meet last weekend in uh, North Houston. And, and gymnastics gyms are notorious for not having enough room for crowds. So we have this crowd that's there. And uh, you had to walk in the gym and walk right next to the, the floor where you do the floor exercise. So you had to walk along. It was roped off and you had to come this way. So I was over in this area and, and there was this little bottleneck right here where you turn to go to the seats. The seats are way over there. I knew for some reason earlier in the day there was this big mat laying across the walkway. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Why would you have a mat? People are walking. Elderly people are walking. People that can't walk very good are stepping over us and wobbling. I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I almost moved it myself, but I didn't. Later in the day, somebody moves it. And I thought, good. Somebody with a brain realized that people are stepping over that dumb thing. (laughs) There's a crowd coming to me and an elderly lady is walking along. And so I'm going to step just to the edge over here where it appears that there's still a mat. And so, I mean, there's about 10 people coming. I step over here, and if you've ever been to our gymnastics training center, there's a pit. I said, right down on my face in front of everybody. I felt sorry for the girls out on the floor. I figured my daughters saw it, and they were like, oh, that's my dad, you know. And so I pop up, and I'm, I'm like, whoo, you know, and I walk along. Janie said the only thing that would have been better is if I had presented. <laughs> if I ever, I'm telling you, I'm going to do it next time. I was like, oh, that would have been so cool to present. I wasn't that cool. I just hopped up and had the little. And one guy, actually, he was, he was so kind. He's like, dude, I did that earlier. <laughs> I'm like, sweet, you know. And I go tell Janie and Caleb because the girls were out there warming up. And Caleb is like, my father. He was embarrassed for me. Jamie's like, on your face? And I said, all the way down. But I popped back up. If I'd only presented. Zacchaeus is sitting up in the tree and he is stinking embarrassed because everybody's looking at him. But what happened next, nobody was ready for. Jesus says to the scum of society, the lowest of the low on the list, I need to hang out at your house right now. Come on down, Zach. I'm going to your house today. I don't know if you know of any people that every good person in society would shun. I've got some friends like that. Can you imagine Jesus walking up to them and saying, Hey, I need to come to your house today. I'm going to have lunch with you. Zacchaeus comes out of the tree and he's never going to be the same. After having lunch with Jesus, Zacchaeus hops up and he tells the world, I'm, I'm never going to be the same again. For the first time, he owns his dishonesty. He says, I've been dishonest. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against people. He comes out of hiding for the first time in his life and acknowledges all the garbage in his past. And his life has changed. And he vows to give money to the poor and repay anyone he's ripped off. And when when Jesus sees this man's life change, look what he says. Here's a quote. Salvation has come to your house today. Jesus did not say, because you gave a whole bunch of money, you're saved. No. It's just the opposite. 
Jesus is pointing out that because the man met Jesus, he was changed, and then he gave a lot of money because he realized that grace changes things. Grace makes a man do things he wouldn't have done before. Back when I was in youth ministry, we used to do something like this on Easter. We'd have kids, we'd pass out these little pieces of paper, and we'd have them write down all their sins. And they would write, and they would write, and they would just put some of them like, can I have more, you know, and we're writing and writing and writing. I'm like, you're just 12, how many sins, you know, can you really have done? And I talked to them about what grace does. I could list my sins here and you'd be appalled. And I have to pay still today for some of the things in my past. The consequences of my sins have never been wiped out. But my spiritual standing before God, I, I took one of these years ago and I put it on a cross. And, and we burned it, but the problem with burning it was there were still ashes, you know. When Jesus Christ touches a man, there's nothing left spiritually. I'll see it again. <laughs> My kids always like it. Spiritually before Jesus Christ, when you ask Him to be the forgiver of your sins, the leader of your life, that's what happens to you. And if you go back and pray about some sins that you've already confessed, God says, what sin? I choose to remember no more. My Son shed His blood to cover that. Now, you get pregnant out of wedlock, you still have a child, you still got to bear the scars. If you've had um, abortions in your past, you still bear the scars. But your spiritual standing before God, regardless of what you've done, drugs, alcohol, you may have murdered someone, your spiritual standing before God is cleansed when you say, God, would you forgive my sin and lead my life? He wipes it away. Now, I want you to imagine that instead of Zacchaeus hanging out in this tree today, you're in the tree. What is it that's your biggest secret? You see, we as human beings, we have this capacity to live life and pretend that we don't have problems until somebody else finds it out. We'll live like that. We'll live with huge, stinking problems until somebody finds us out and then we have to deal with it. What is it that you wouldn't want Jesus to see today as He's looking at you? I want you to think back to this story and I want you to notice what Jesus did not do. He didn't say, Zacchaeus, if you'll clean up your life, change professions, and pay back what you owe, I'll come to your house. I won't come now because it'll, it'll appear that I'm condoning what you do. And I, frankly, I can't, I can't take the criticism right now, so if you'll clean up first, I'll come hang out with you. That's, that's not what Jesus did. But I'm afraid Christians have said those things to people. I'm afraid churches I have been in have said those things to people. And it's caused people not to come back to church. Jesus came to Zacchaeus before he got respectable. And people grumbled. How dare he hang out with notorious sinners? And they grumbled, that's not fair. And you know what? They're right. Grace is never fair. Grace offers us what we do not deserve, and Jesus Christ lived 
to offer grace to the lowest people on the list. So Zacchaeus quits hiding. He comes out and he says he'll pay back. He'll give half his money to the poor and he'll pay back four times what he's ripped somebody off. You see, the law said, the Jewish law said, if you've ripped somebody off, you have to pay them back what you ripped them off plus 20%. So if he ripped you off 100 bucks, then the law says he has to give you $120 as penalty. Zacchaeus goes, no, I'll give him 400 bucks just to show you that I'm no longer hiding between, behind money and possessions. It's a changed life. 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 Zacchaeus gives us this great lesson today. To all who are hiding but really need to be found, God has spoken in this Easter in, in Jesus Christ. And He says, come out, come out wherever you are. You don't have to hide anymore. No matter what you've done, my grace can set you free. No penalties, no punishment, no getting caught. Just come home. Trust me. Grace turns everything upside down. We remember the birth of Jesus the Christ. We have been told stories of old. God came as a child to change the destiny of all men, to show forgiveness to sinners. To believe such things is misguided. The truth is, he was just an ordinary man who lived an ordinary life. Those who do not believe the truth say, We proclaim his name, Emmanuel, God with us. We share the wonder of the shepherds. We sing the songs of the angels. This is not what is real. Shepherds were not awakened by angelic announcement. There were no wise men celebrating the birth of the king. I'd be lying to you if I said that for the creator of the universe, there was no room in the inn. For the Son of God, there was but a humble stable. Whether you like it or not, this is the reality of Christmas. That's what I used to think. But then I made room for him in my heart and Jesus turned it all upside down. This is the reality of Christmas, whether you like it or not. There was but a humble stable for the Son of God. There was no room in the end for the creator of the universe. I'd be lying to you if I said that there were no wise men celebrating the birth of the king, that shepherds were not awakened by angelic announcement. This is not what is real. We sing the song of the angels. We share the wonder of the shepherds. We proclaim his name, Emmanuel, God with us. Those who do not believe the truth say he was just an ordinary man who lived an ordinary life, but to believe such things is misguided. The truth is, to show forgiveness to sinners, to change the destiny of all men, God came as a child. We've been told stories of old. We remember the birth of Jesus Christ. Grace rocks a person's world. And if you want to know how to be a grace dispenser, we started New Life almost seven years ago, and we said, if it kills us, we will pour out grace to people that, that nobody else wants. And so if you want to know how to be a person who dispenses grace, like Jesus the Christ, then there's three things you need to do. The first thing is, you've got to stay very close to the cross. 
I need to be reminded daily that I was dead in my sin. You want to you read some stuff about this? Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And it says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Dead people don't need someone to make them comfortable. Dead people don't need someone to uh, wipe their brow. Dead people need to be made alive. And because of my sin, I was dead. And I need to be reminded, I was dead. And if not for the grace of Jesus Christ, I would be nothing. When I'm aware of my sinfulness, I don't condemn you for your sin. And see, one of the things we've preached over and over is behavior modification is not my job. Because I have people who will say, how can you let that person come to your church? (laughs) And all I can answer is it's the grace of God. Behavior modification has never been the church's job. My job and your job is to love people. Behavior modification belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't tell Zach that he had to dress up so that he could come to church and then then maybe if he did all of these things and didn't do all of these things that maybe the people at church would like him. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus poured out grace on him and it rocked his world. See, when, when I become proud, by the way, the Bible says pride goes before the fall. The Bible says God despises proud people but He gives grace to the humble. There's that grace word again. When I become proud, I sit up here and I say, look how far I've come. You sorry people aren't as spiritual as I am. And I might as well crucify Jesus Christ again. Because that attitude will keep people out of the church. But when I go, and and no matter what a person does, when I love them and encourage them, whether I agree with their lifestyle or not, I just believe that grace will overwhelm somebody's hard heart and bring them to Christ. See, when, when I'm close to the cross, I realize that I don't even need to compare myself to my sin to your sin. I compare myself to the sinless Son of God on the cross and then I don't even care what your sin is because I'm so aware of my sin. And when I'm in that state, I can, I can shower other people with grace. Live close to the cross and those around you will notice your gracefulness. Second thing I've got to do is I've got to stay close to grace-providing people. We all need people who will love us no matter what because it seems like the world and it seems like every church I've been in before this one is filled with like grace-impaired people. They're grace-slow people. And, and they ought to be called EGR, extra grace required to be around them. EGRs. I don't know if you have any EGRs in your life, but I do. They'll judge you and they'll criticize you no matter what you do. It is never good enough. We've got to have grace providers in our lives. Grace is like a cool drink of water when I've been out in the desert. Grace providers lift me up spiritually instead of beat me down. They know the worst about me and they don't shy away from me because they know I'm sinful. And I love them in return. Because I can't believe someone could know me that well and love me. My wife is one of the greatest grace providers in the world. If, if you don't know my wife, then, then you need to. She can't provide grace for all of you because she does it for me all the time. One, one year um, on a youth trip years ago, we were coming back from Dallas and uh, 
we, we did a lot of fun stuff in youth ministry. We'd been out to eat at the old spaghetti warehouse in the Fort Worth stockyards and we'd gone around. This was a, it was a fun trip for our, our teenagers. And, um, we come back and we're, we're just this side of, um, Corsicana and, uh, one of the guys in the back got sick. I'm driving the 15 passenger van. Janie's over there and she's, she's riding shotgun. And I hear, Doug. I'm like, yeah. I think I'm going to... Now, luckily, somebody had a sack, and he he somehow grabbed a sack, and so I'm... You know, on the side of the road, I'm telling all the other cars, go, you do not want to see this. The seventh grade dudes are at the back of the van going, wow, look at that one! And they're trying to name the stuff that's coming out, and it's like projectile, you know. And so we kept stopping... Every every few miles, dude was sick. I don't know what he ate, but he was sick. He's just chunking stuff out there, and we're slamming on the brakes. One time, just a little bit, missed the sack and got on the seat. People were diving in the van, hitting the floors. Ah, don't let it touch me! And other, you know, grace-filled comments about this poor guy. And and um, I'm driving along, and and I. <laughs> I get this one-track mind, and I'm thinking, you know, I told the parents we'd be home by this time, so you need to puke fast because I'm going to get you home. Puke, come on, come on. I know you're sick, but come on. And uh, so I don't tend to be grace-filled at that moment. So it's like 11 o'clock at night. It's dark outside, and I'm driving as fast as I can in between pukes. You know. And all of a sudden, I hear Janie. And, and she said, I'm going to go back there and sit with him. And so he was like a junior in high school. She goes back there and kind of puts her arm around him. She pulls out a wet wipe, you know, and she's wiping his head. It's okay, sweetheart. It's okay. He hurls again, misses a little bit. Janie's back there cleaning it up. All the other kids, I mean, it's like sardines, you know, back in the back corner so nobody has to be near it or smell it or anything. And Janie's back there cleaning up not her own child's stuff, but someone else's. And she goes, it's okay. She's rubbing the back of his head. It's okay, sweetheart. It's okay. It's okay. We're going to make it. It's okay. And I'm driving the van going, holy cow, I married the coolest woman in the world because her grace overcame all of the ungrace that was in the van. And the seventh grade boys, there's a lot of ungrace. And, and I just thought, God, I need to learn from her. i got to stay close to grace-providing people. You know, that young man has never forgotten that. He lives in Hawaii today, and every once in a while we'll get an email. And he still remembers how kind Janie was to him about 12 years ago. Grace sticks with people. So i got to stay close to the cross. I need to stay close to grace-providing people. If you're not in a small group, you don't have anybody providing grace to you on a regular basis. I'm just telling you that. You need to be hooked up in a small group. And the last thing is what new life is all about. I got to stay very close to sinful people. <gasps> Listen to what I'm saying. I need to stay close to people who are empty, who are full of sin, and I need to dispense grace to them. Now, I'm not saying that's the only people you need to hang out with because you tend to become like the people you hang out with. You need grace providers, and then you need to share grace with someone who's hurting. If we'll only pray and ask God to open our eyes, He'll show us people who are going down. People who may not 
want to live another day. They're all around us. Jesus was called a friend of sinners, and to Him it was not an insult at all. The religious leaders, the ungraced champions, you, you, you're a friend of sinners! Jesus wore it like a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. That's why I came. Just to be a friend of sinners. How I want our church to be a friend of sinners. I don't care what any other churches say. I care about what Jesus says. And I care that lost people hear that there's a place for them. And, and when we run out of space, we're going to build some more. When we start dispensing grace, the doors will not be able to keep people out. 